Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Welcome, one and all, to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I am Mark Ellis. I'm a comedian and RT correspondent, and I'm joined by, as always, my esteemed co-host, Miss Jacqueline Coley. Yes, Jacqueline Coley. I'm an editor at Rotten Tomatoes, where I write about independent film and awards. And right now, trying to keep sleep, <laughs> trying to trying to basically have sleep and sanity in the midst of the streaming award season, because no more West Side Story, kids. <laughs> We're going to have fun. It's uh, it's interesting you bring up West Side Story as the director of that upcoming film, or at least is currently Steven Spielberg. And he also directed the movie that we're talking about today. No, 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 no. It's not the shark movie. It's not the well, it kind of is the alien movie, I guess. It's talking about Indiana Jones, but not the first three Indiana Jones film there. He made a fourth one in 2008, and it is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom. Of the Crystal Skull, a movie that critics seemed to love, audiences did not respond to, and that's reflected in the tomato meter. It is 78% fresh on the critic side of the tomato meter. The audience score is just 54%. And so, Jacqueline, I think the question is, is this a good movie? Is it a good Indiana Jones movie? Is it more George's movie? Is it Steven's movie? Was anybody involved with the film happy with the final product? And then are we happy with it? Uh, I, I, I will not say that I am completely unhappy with this movie. I have some thoughts about it. I'm definitely not going to mirror what our guest is going to say about it. But the one thing I will say, based on what I've learned, is it seems the only person who was really happy with this movie was George Lucas. And for that, maybe we can make it an okay thing. He seemed to be happy with it. Let's move on, right? Hey, George, George deserves some love. He got to make a nice 1950s alien movie. So before we get into all of the making of the movie and then our specific points about the film itself, Jacqueline, it's Indiana Jones, and he's a little older. He might be somewhat wiser, but what's this movie about? Yes, we are back with the fourth installment of the Indiana Jones franchise. We have George Lucas back as a producer. We have Steven Spielberg back behind in the director's chair. And Harrison Ford is back in the iconic outfit as Indy. And this time around, he has a new cast of characters and some old faces, courtesy of Marion Ravenwood, his long-term love interest, played by Karen Allen. And it turns out, a long-lost son, Mutt Williams, played by Shia LaBeouf. In this tale, Indy has 
has been kicked out from his professorship because the FBI suspects that he may have given top secret information to the Russians, which is coming to us courtesy of Kate Blanchett and an accent that is right out of Rocky and Bullwinkle. These three are trying to prevent Blanchett from figuring out the long lost secret that has something to do with an alien head and a lost city of gold. And John Hurt shows up for some reason, basically being a rambling crazy person. And all of this is just giving us a chance for Indy to have another grand adventure. So basically what you're saying is it's really tough for anybody who used to write those back of the movie VHS jacket synopses. It's tough to get that all on one piece of cardboard. There's a lot going on in this movie. There's a lot going on in this movie. (laughs) And Until you said it, I had no idea that Mutt had a last name. I had no idea Williams was his last name or at least his given last name. And like we said, critics kind of went gaga over this, especially when it came out initially. And then we put on our Monday morning quarterback or 12 years later in this case. And we say, well, does it hold up? According to the critics, what were they saying at the time? Well, that's why we have Tim Ryan, our esteemed review curator here at Rotten Tomatoes. He's going to give us a breakdown of what critics were saying about Indiana Jones and the kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Tim, it's all yours. Thank you, Mark. So May 18th, 2008 was a pretty momentous day for me. It was the day that Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull premiered at Cannes, which meant a lot of reviews to add very quickly. And it was also the day of the NBA Eastern Conference semifinals between my beloved Boston Celtics and the Cleveland Cavaliers. So as the reviews started coming in, and there were a bunch of them, we might have added close to 60 reviews that day. And I noticed a pattern in that a lot of critics were pretty happy with the movie, But it wasn't like the response was overwhelming. So what did some of the individual critics have to say about the movie when it came out? In a fresh review, Renee Rodriguez of the Miami Herald wrote, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull may be the slightest, least memorable entry in the franchise, but it's a franchise with a rather high bar, and the film's plentiful flaws do not overwhelm its pleasures. On the other hand, in a rotten review, Lisa Kennedy of the Denver Post wrote, Ultimately, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is an instant artifact. It's a vessel with a great deal of pictorial images on its surface, but its contents are long gone. On May 26, 2008, the tomato meter was 79% with 193 reviews. Today, the tomato meter is 78% with 273 reviews. However, the audience score is 54%, and I've just gotten this general impression that people really don't like The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And on occasion, we'll hear from people saying that they can't believe that we gave it 78%. One thing you got to remember about a film festival is in that hothouse environment, there might be a bit of buzz around a film, but most critics don't have time to be reading a bunch of reviews or talking to each other because they have to go write their own reviews really quickly before getting to another screening. So the idea that necessarily there was some sort of campaign for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is kind of silly. When you look at the fact that the percentages only changed 1% within 12 years, it's important to remember that since it's a percentage, there's only so much the tomato meter can shift after it hits a certain number of reviews. So if a movie has 500 reviews or something, five or six reviews, or maybe even 10 aren't necessarily going to move the needle all that much. So to recap, I think the overall tenor of the reviews was that the critics were just so happy to have Indiana Jones back on the big screen, given how large he looms in the cinematic universe, that they were willing to overlook some of the film's flaws. And I think the audience score of 54% attests to the fact that a lot of fans were not willing to overlook some of those perceived flaws. So there you have it. Mark, take it away. 
You know, Jack, just hearing Tim talk about that, I, I do feel like this movie, maybe more so than other ones, may, I don't want to say put the wool over critics' eyes, but it gave them the nostalgia tinges, and that seemed to be enough to carry them into fresh territory. Yeah, I, I think with this film, again, it's it's not harmful. This is not a sort of extinction level event with the Indiana Jones series where you're just like, oh, I just wish we could delete this from the, the memory and pretend that it didn't happen. But it's definitely just doesn't have what it needs to have to warrant it, its existence. And I think the critic that sort of summed that up for me was Lisa Kennedy from the Denver Post, another sister who writes about movies, I might add, where she was like, I'm just tired. It's not bad, exactly. It's not a desecration of the franchise. It's just tired. And that's kind of what I was when I was rewatching it. I was tired because I had to wake up this morning and finish it because I fell asleep. <laughs> well, being tired is certainly a better fate than what befell the four not lovable but kids in South Park. So we won't touch that episode. Instead, we'll bring on our esteemed guest, who I believe is a fan of the Indiana Jones franchise. We'll get his thoughts on this movie in a second. He is not only one of our good friends here at Rotten Tomatoes, he's been a guest on several of our Your Opinion Sucks panels, but he is a longtime since birth movie lover, adore, and his passion has bled through to multiple facets where he's worked for Access Hollywood, Collider, and everywhere in between. He's currently a film critic with KTLA Channel 5 here in Los Angeles, and he just debuted a few months ago his brand new YouTube channel. He is Mr. Movie Release Dates, Scott freaking Mance. Scott, it is so good to hear your voice again. Give me some. Oh, man, oh, man. Is it good to hear your voices it is so great to be back with my friends on Rotten Tomatoes. I am a big Rotten Tomatoes fan, whether it's coming on to do the after shows like we did for like Avengers or Star Wars or whether we're doing the European Sucks panels. Remember when we had gatherings of people and we were able to do that? Remember those days? I, I do. And, and maybe one of the first times that you and I got to interact properly was <laughs> at a screening of Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, because that was right when Christian and I had just started doing Schmoes No Reviews. And we were pumped beyond belief for this new Indiana Jones movie. I was I was blasted by the trailers. I thought they were awesome. And then you see the movie, and I, I feel like I kind of maybe sugarcoated my review at the time a little bit just because I was still processing what I saw. But we are over a decade after this movie now, Scott. So I got to ask you, is Kingdom of the Crystal Skull fresh or does absolutely. it deserve to be rotten? It is absolutely fresh. I think, well, first of all, and Jacqueline touched us on, on this already, that uh, it's it's uh, it's not a bad movie. And, you know, I think, Jacqueline, you used the word that, you you know, you were tired. If movie feels tired. I think when I first saw Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull at a press screening on the Paramount lot in the big, huge Paramount Theater, I was so excited just to see the first Indiana Jones movie in 19 years. Now, Crystal Skull, it opened on May 22nd, 2008, and it made something like almost $800 million worldwide, which makes it by far the highest grossing Indiana Jones movie worldwide. And also, 
with its budget of $185 million, it's not only easily the most expensive of the Indiana Jones movies, it is also the most expensive movie that Steven Spielberg ever directed. So that's an interesting statistic. But I love this movie. I remember where I saw all of the Indiana Jones movies and who I was with. And I love this movie. I think the the setbacks, the the bad parts of the movie, we can all agree on, but it doesn't take away from how much I love the film. I like to look at an apples to apples comparison because uh, they're both George Lucas properties. I look at Crystal Skull the way I look at The Force Awakens, you know, which was the first Star Wars movie in what, uh, let's see, uh, uh, 2005 to 10 years. It'd be a good 10 years, yes. I I was waiting. It felt like 20 for me, but it was 10 for most people. (laughs) But but Mark and Jacqueline, I just felt like it was so great to see Indiana Jones. Of course, you see him pick up the fedora and you'll hear the John Williams score. And look, this is a different world. It's it's not – 1935, 36, or 38. It's 1957. The Nazis are ancient history. The baddies now are the Russians. And, you know, Jacqueline, when I was rewatching the film and I was listening to Kate Blanchett talk, yeah, I definitely thought of Rocky and Bullwinkle. But what is Moosin Squirrel? Moosin Squirrel. But, Jacqueline, who, Jacqueline, name an actor or an actress. Who has had a Russian accent in a Army film? Army Hammer in Man from Uncle. Don't go but here, Scott. Everybody, <laughs> Jacqueline. Everybody sounds like Rocky and Bullwinkle when they try no. to do a Russian accent. No. So don't blame Academy Award winner Kate Blanchett because she was having fun playing a Russian baddie. I thought that she was fun. I would say fine. it's more a credit to Rocky and Bullwinkle and how great that show is than it is a detriment to Kate Blanchett's particular <laughs> performance in this. Jacqueline, do you remember you were still hanging around Austin when you? first saw this movie right yeah no this was definitely back in the uh the austin days and i think when i first saw it i know specifically i did not see it in the theaters and it wasn't because i'm not an indiana jones fan in fact um the last crusade uh is one of my all-time favorite movies just period um I just remember how old I thought Harrison Ford looked. And granted, when I did watch the movie, he does move well. I'm not saying (laughs) that he doesn't, but I just it was the first time I really sort of like grasped the idea that this icon of mine was aging and I was not all right with it at that at that particular time. Um, And yeah, even back then, I just kind of was like, eh, it was there. It happened. It was the beginning of what we would come to find out is Harrison Ford. Um cashing a bunch of checks off of stuff that he did in the 80s, 90s. So I didn't know that that was going to set off a trend. Um, So it was whatever. Real quick, though, Scott, I just want to talk to you real quick about that accent. No, no, no. (laughs) People do good Russian accents all the time. And Kate Blanchett had not won an Academy Award prior to... Yes, she did. Uh, oh, she did. Oh, that, that's right. Because Blue Valentine's four. Never mind. I'm well, thinking no, of the wrong Kate one. Blanchett was already an Academy Award winning actress. Award winning, she did it. That's right. That's right. Yeah, she's she already won- Academy Award winning actress. Right. What I was right. going to say is, if they looked at that tape, the Academy would have taken it away. <laughs> oh, it's I a, have to say, it's a Norbit situation. Wow. Hmm. No, no, no. She was she was an Oscar winner for supporting actress for playing uh, Catherine Hepburn in The Aviator, Easy, which came out in two thousand four. But but see for me. The the uh, listen, 
And just to give you some background as to where I'm coming from, Jacqueline, if you think uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Cru- and the Last Crusade is one of your all-time favorite movies, from from my point of view, Temple of Doom is a better film than The Last Crusade. Temple of Doom is the best of the Indiana Jones sequels. So right then and there, you have a different perspective because I, I'm in the minority in that I prefer Temple of Doom over Last Crusade. Usually, most people prefer Last Crusade over Temple of Doom, and that's largely because of Sean Connery. But I think Temple of Doom is an underrated, misunderstood, dark as shit movie and one of the films that created the PG-13 rating because it was so violent. Uh, Temple of Doom and Gremlins both came out in 1984, and both of those movies were so dark and so violent that they created the PG-13 rating, and both of those movies were Steven Spielberg movies. Uh, Temple of Doom was directed by Spielberg and Gremlins was produced by Spielberg. I'm going off track here. The thing about Crystal Skull, okay? No, wait, I'll tell you this about Crystal Skull, though. It's interesting that you bring up Temple of Doom because from my perspective, I think Temple of Doom is apex Harrison Ford, like the all-time great movie star. If aliens came down, maybe the aliens in Crystal Skull came back and they said, hey, uh, Mark, what's a movie star look like? I would say 1984 Harrison Ford at the beginning of that movie at Club Obi-Wan. I will agree with Jacqueline and say that Last Crusade is my favorite Indiana Jones film, but a lot of the talk around Crystal Skull was, hey, is this Harrison Ford cashing a check? Is he just showing up? Is he just putting the fedora on or is he becoming Indiana Jones again? And one of the fresh takes I have about this movie is that he was he was Indiana Jones. He was an older Indiana Jones. But that scene and, and it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie and the whole franchise, for that matter, is when they're digging around this crypt and Mutt is looking up and you have that perspective of realizing that this is not just a teacher. This is not just an archaeologist. He teaches part time. He is full time Indiana Jones. And just seeing that moment, it was great to put it in the trailer because it made us feel like Indy was back. I thought Harrison Ford did Indiana Jones again. I don't think it was just him showing up to get a check. Let's start some poison! Stay there. You're a... a teacher? Part-time. Okay, uh, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um... I don't think it was, listen, I definitely don't think it was him just showing up to get a check. Although I think it is interesting, like Jacqueline pointed out, how after Crystal Skull, Ford returned to Star Wars and he returned to Blade Runner, uh, which are just among his very, very greatest roles, you know, Deckard, Han Solo, Indiana Jones. Um, But for me, the wake up call, so to speak, the flash of light, I will say, that this is not your daddy's Indiana Jones movie was the scene in the beginning when after the big opening at Area 51 in the warehouse where we catch a glimpse of the Lost Ark and we hear that that John Williams music cue for the Lost Ark, which gave me the chills, especially when I watched it again. Um, I love the scene when he finds himself at the atomic blast test site. It's an eerie scene with all the dummies and all the mannequins and everything is perfect. Like it was an eerie scene. Like he's like, wait a minute, where the hell am I? What's going on here? 
And then he hears the sirens and he hears the over the voiceover that they're counting down and he goes, oh, this isn't good. This can't be good. Oh, that can't be good. You know, him hiding in the refrigerator, which is a very, very subtle nod to the original time machine that they were going to use for Back to the Future. Um, And when he survives that blast, the image, okay, just go with me on this, guys. The image, when Harrison Ford gets out, he realizes he survived the blast. And you see the silhouette of Indiana Jones with the fedora standing beneath the mushroom cloud. This is like, okay, this is different. We are not around World War II. We're not around Nazis anymore. The world has changed, Dr. Jones. Are you still relevant? Do you still matter? And I felt like, yes, he absolutely does. And rewatching this movie now for the first time in a long, long, long time, maybe since 2008, I love this movie more now than I did back then. That's interesting. That's the pandemic talking. That's the pandemic talking. (laughs) Sorry. Hey, we all need content to watch. Did did the movie start to go off the rails for you? Because I know, Jacqueline, you think the movie's rotten. Did did it start going off the rails for you at the fridge bomb scene, which a lot of people point to as, wait, what's going on here? Because for me, I I just I, I gave every Indiana Jones movie gets a pass because it has one of those weird, wacky, cartoonish kind of scenes where nobody could survive that. And I'm like, but it's Indiana Jones. And so I just moved along with the movie. Did that was that a stick in the mud for you? No. And like, I don't know what I felt when I first saw it. The only thing I remember is I did see it and it was just, you know, a thing I did this time around. It really did go off the rails for me in the opening shot. Hey, what you got under there? Like, first of all, you're going to open with the Elvis Presley, You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog. And if you haven't heard the Big Mama Thornton version, please do so. Because if you've heard that, (laughs) every time you hear the Elvis version, it is literally like watered down whiskey. It is just so not fun to listen to. So that like already put me in a bad mood. And who are these white children? that are like taunting the dudes in the car. I was just like, I just, I don't need this level of 50s nostalgia. And I think it's also the time, cause I'm just like, you know, you guys are harassing somebody in like the next scene of this movie that plays out off screen, like go away, go away with your like 50s, uh, like throwback stuff. I, this movie is so in love with a time period that I have nothing 
but just disdain and just like whatever for that it's really hard for me to get invested anyway and particularly opening it up that way. I liked it when it felt like they were going and doing the archaeology stuff. So like when when, you know, Harrison Ford is explaining to Shia LaBeouf about this is the golden head of this guy and like this is what he did. That is the part of the film that I was like, yes, get to the archaeological dig. And also calling back to something earlier, it is not Sean Connery that makes The Last Crusade amazing. It's River Phoenix. Talk about the difference between two openings of movies. And that kind of gives you an idea. Like that movie, I was like, yes, like give it to me, Indy. And this one, I was like, gophers, why? That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. It, well, that, that CGI gopher, I think, threw a lot of people off, too. And it really is the Lucas influence, I think, Scott, because George Lucas loves the 1950s. He, he made his his bank initially off of a movie, American Graffiti, which is all about that sort of nostalgia. And then when you have a gopher that is CGI, it's foreshadowing for the rest of the movie where they didn't have the luxury of CGI for the bulk of the first three films. And so they had to rely on practical effects. And Steven Spielberg, one of his most glowing quotes, in my opinion, about his buddy George Lucas is that George knows how to compromise a vision and still get a great product because you have to when he was handcuffed on the original the Star Wars movie and he had to go to practical effects and invent new ways with this movie I think it gets some of the same criticism as the Star Wars prequels where now you have all these toys at your disposal you have all this CGI and for me the scene that typifies that where I would put it as a rotten scene if not tainting the whole film is the mutt swinging in the trees doing the monkey thing. And it's I think it's the combination of I don't blame Shia LaBeouf because it's not his fault. He's thrown into this. He's doing the best he can. But it's a character that we were still not sure about. And then you put him in the worst scene in the movie. And I think that soured that entire character for a lot of the audience. They thought he was going to be like amazing in that scene, though. I really do think because, again, the CGI comes in later. They thought that was going to be his like hero shot. They thought this is going to be like on Endor when like they're jumping from the from the various jet ski bikes. They thought that was what that moment was going to be. And it wasn't. Um, I I completely agree with that one. Also, again, not to pile on Kate because we all love her, but anything to do with her is problematic in the movie. And any of her all of her scenes were what I loved for like, oh, my God, this is so bad and I live for it. But also like the worst things ever and especially the end. Like by the time we get to the end and spoiler alert, the aliens melt her face off. 
I am with the aliens. Go aliens, go. Melt her face off, not because she's evil, just because I don't want to watch this anymore. I want to know. Tell me. I'm ready. I want to know. Go over it. Go over it. All right. First of all, absolutely agree with both of you. 100,000%. My my agreement with you on this is certified fresh with a perfect score that the swinging <laughs> the swinging monkey scene is like the worst scene in any Indiana Jones movie, not just Crystal Skull. But and the movie, look, it does have its flaws. In addition to that, the whole middle part of the film is actually kind of slow. And uh, it was totally predictable that Mutt Williams was going to be Indiana Jones's son. I mean, it was like the worst kept secret since Spock is going to die in Wrath of Khan in 1982. But also, you have to remember, because I certainly do, that at the time in 2008, Shia LaBeouf was not the most well-liked, well-respected actor in Hollywood. Well, the first Transformers movie had already come out. You know, his character in that film was kind of annoying. Uh, his that that movie uh, that he did, uh, Suburbia, uh, Disturbia, whatever it was. Disturbia, um, yeah. He kind of came onto the scene pretty fast, and he was making these big polished studio tentpole films and like he really didn't like earn his place there and he was kind of a turnoff I think to a lot of people that people didn't like him in Indiana Jones before he even made his first appearance riding on that bike looking like Marlon Brando in The Wild One um, but now that all that time has passed Mark and Jacqueline it's been 12 years and you know, Shia LaBeouf has gone through some some personal stuff, but in the last year and a half, Shia LaBeouf has really reinvented himself and has been doing some of the very best acting of his career. And rewatching, uh, you know, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull for the first time after all these years, uh, it made me reappreciate Shia's performance and his presence in that movie. And I thought that his chemistry with Harrison Ford was actually quite good. I thought I'll that co-sign made, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I I agree with that. Is that I, I think they did have good chemistry. It, it's just that I, you know he was kind of Spielberg's Spielberg's kid. Who Steven Spielberg has worked with many great child actors, and then when he was in Transformers, which Spielberg produced, and then that's a that, that's one of those questions where you go beyond just the movie, though, Jacqueline, because you have Spielberg casting who he wants, and you have George doing the story, and Spielberg trying to do right by George, and so the Shia LaBeouf angle of this is just one of the many. I don't want to say issues or tension between these two great director friends, but it does speak to the larger question of who really. One, making this movie, because quotes from Spielberg since then are almost apologetic, where it's like, well, I was just trying to do a favor for my friend because Spielberg didn't want to make another alien movie. He, he yes. said that he's like, I'm just doing this to see George's vision through. I trust his story. I'm going to do it my way. But it's what George wants. And so maybe George wanted too much is George, what a lot of the criticism might be. Yeah. George got what he wanted. 
And look, there's like rumors and like knowledge about different people that were supposed to direct this. Apparently, um, M. Night Shyamalan wrote a script on this. Um, at one point, Frank Darabont was going to write like the fourth uh, Indiana Jones movie. And George hated that script. Steven Spielberg loved it. And so they nixed it. I just wonder what would have happened if they would have given Steven Spielberg the opportunity to just make another movie and not be so beholden to what George Lucas wanted. And what's really interesting about this movie is in a certain way, it's funny that you say that it's similar to um, what J.J. did with um, the the first Star Wars movie um, with The Force Awakens is because, not the first Star Wars movie, but you know what I meant, the seventh Star Wars movie. Uh, it, it's movie technically trilogy. the seventh episode. Yes, seventh <laughs> episode of the first one of the new trilogy. Anyway, because I believe that that movie got made the way that it got made because of the failure of this, because originally George did give Disney a script and said, hey, this is what I would vision for 789. And basically everyone at Disney was like, yeah, n- we're good. We're going to let J.J. do what he wants to do. And I just wish they would have done that with this one, because I feel like being so beholden to what George thought was going to be pushing that character forward. Have, imagine having like just a great nostalgia fest with nothing but callbacks and just a lot of fan service the way The Force Awakens was. Imagine having an indie movie like that. I think that would have resonated. It would have given everybody what they wanted and it wouldn't have put the sour taste in our mouths and what we thought was going to be the final installment of the series. But it looks like now we're going to get a fifth one. And so this movie just always leaves me with this idea of like, just why? Why did you feel the need of like bringing in John Hurt? Like, like, let's talk about that. Like, why did y'all make him do that? Like that man is a well-respected actor and y'all just made him spout gibberish for hours. Why do you got to do a quicksand joke? I mean, just why? Like there were so many things that were just questionable in this they had all the pieces to make a really great movie and because they just couldn't say no to George Lucas we ended up with what we got and that was I think a a fatal flaw well well first of all if you're if you're talking about doing a movie that's going to have really lay into the fan service uh you're not going to end up with the force awakens you're going to end up with the rise of Skywalker and mm. that was a movie that a lot of people did not like I mean I I liked it I I went with it it I, I I went Touché, with it. it, it man. Touche. So I, I love it, and a- it is episode nine for everyone keeping score at home. Thank you. I love Rise of Scott. Wedge shows up. Anyway, go ahead, Scott. But no, I, I think that uh, you know they, they they made the best movie they could while pleasing and involving the original principles, and that includes. Uh, the return of Marion Ravenwood, played by Karen Allen. And just like I felt that Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade really came to life and found its identity when Sean Connery makes his appearance, I felt like Crystal Skull really came to life when Indy and Marion got back together and started arguing right away, just like they did back in Nepal in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because I still, to this day, to this day, I would say that Karen Allen is the best romantic love interest and female co-star Harrison Ford has ever had. The reason for that being because she was strong, she was tough, she gave as good as she got, she was his equal, and she didn't take a shit. So 
to have could that- do those shots to do those shots in Raiders of the Lost Ark and then just go back to bartending afterwards. Like she she drank a dude three times her weight on under the table and then she just goes back to bartending and she's just get like that. That is a strong liver. That is a strong woman. <laughs> and I co-signed Karen Allen showing up being something that, that moved the, the movie forward. And just as far as the level of fan service versus trying to tell a new story. Jacqueline, I'd argue that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull tried to do what Force Awakens did better. And the reason why Force Awakens did it better is because when that movie came out, sure, we love seeing the original cast again, but hey, look at these new, we we, we have Rey, we have Finn, we have Poe, and we actually like those characters. And for whatever reason, you can pin it on Shia LaBeouf if you want to. You can pin it on what his character had to do. We just did not respond to the new characters. And I'd even put, I, I think we all like Kylo Ren a lot more than Kate Blanchett in that movie, is that it, it had the ingredients there and it just didn't pull off the recipe as well as what Force Awakens did. And part of that is probably because Force Awakens could look at the playbook. Hey, what did we do right with Crystal Skull? What did we do wrong with yes. Crystal Skull? And so it had the benefit of time. But it's just so interesting hearing us talk about this, how influential this Indiana Jones film ended up being. It might be the reason why Shia LaBeouf just strictly wants to do indie films now. It's because he's done with the, the corporate Transformers, Indiana Jones kind of world. Just let me make the movies I want to make. I think the last uh, Transformers movie that he did probably killed his hopes of big budgets <laughs> uh, more than this one. Sure. But to your point, yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't want to rail. Yes, I, I don't think this movie is good. I don't think this movie is good. But it, watching it a second time, I didn't have the rage that I expected to have with it. Uh, thinking about to things like the fridge and the gophers and the swinging. It was just puzzlement and confusion and general like um, misunderstanding of what is essential to make a good Indiana Jones movie. And I'm sorry, aliens aren't part of that formula, kids. Can I ask you a question, though? Because this is this is something that we can we can go on for three hours about this is is the movie good if it came out when the other Indiana Jones films came out? Because I feel like we give even Last Crusade, which I love. It's my favorite Indiana Jones movie, probably my top 10 movies of all time. There's a ridiculous boat chase in there that doesn't need to happen where three people die and we didn't need to do it because all we wanted to figure out is where is Indy's dad being held? And here we have a number of ridiculous sequences that maybe it's just too many for people to get over. But does the nostalgia for the original movies in a way, Scott, actually hurt the perception of the fourth entry? Well, I think that's a really good point, Mark. And I would say that the nostalgia for the first three entries, the impact, especially that the first movie had on Hollywood, on movie making. I mean, this is 1981 when that movie came out. Uh, it, and I look, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a masterpiece and one of Steven Spielberg's very best movies, period. Uh, but listen, you brought up that's a really good question. And so is the, the point about what if Crystal Skull came out in, let's say, 1992 and Harrison Ford was only three years older than he was when he made Last Crusade? Would it have been a better movie? Well, probably because you would have had a Harrison Ford who looks the same, has the same energy. Uh, you know, Spielberg and Lucas would have still been in that zone. You know what I mean? Like it's been almost 20 years. You know, they have to kind of like sort of re rediscover you know, uh, learn what it means to be Indiana Jones, but also make him feel relevant and older and take his age into account. I always said that 
Crystal Skull is my least favorite of the four Indiana Jones movies, but I still love it. And But I do think it's worth noting that Crystal Skull is the only one of the four Indiana Jones movies to not get nominated for any Academy Awards at all, not even visual effects and not even for the score by John Williams. What it did win, what it did win was a Razzie. It won a Razzie for worst prequel, remake, spinoff, or sequel. And I have a feeling that Jacqueline is right in cahoots with that. <laughs> I am not on the Razzie committee, but I approve their selections. Uh, also, one more thing, too. I, I also want to correct the record. I know you really love uh, Karen Ravenwood, but I just want to say General Leia Organa, Tess McGill, even Rachel the Amish girl from Witness begged to differ that Harrison Ford didn't have love interests slash women alongside him. No, that no, no. Rival. That's not what I said. That's not okay. what I said. I, 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 he's had a lot of great, a lot of great female co-stars. Obviously, Carrie Fisher is one of them. And so is Kelly McGillis. And, and so I have to say, one of Harrison Ford's best female co-stars in a movie is actually Michelle Pfeiffer in What Lies Beneath. Ooh, good pull. Okay. All right. Pull. All right. Yeah. But but again, in terms of what, uh, listen, uh, Carrie Fisher in 1977, Princess Leia, that was a groundbreaking, trailblazing, inspiring uh, role model for so many people. But there was something rough and ready and very independent, more independent about the way Marion Ravenwood was holding her own in a foreign land, holding her alcohol, you know, uh, uh, sticking up for herself when these uh, Nazi lovers walk in the room and want uh, the headpiece to the staff of Ra. Um, it is, you know, I Harrison Ford has had a lot of great female co-stars, but I still, going back and watching the first Raiders, which is my favorite Indiana Jones movie, uh, I still marvel about the equalness of those characters. Man, can't believe y'all are just going to throw Celia Ward under the bus. She got murdered in The Fugitive, <laughs> y'all. She took the hardest hit of any of them. And right. y'all are just acting like, you, you probably think Dr. Richard Kimball did it. Don't you, Jacqueline? <laughs> Don't you, Scott? Yes. I, I, how do y'all do this? Because when I walk into a theater, and especially if it's like a Star Wars movie or something that I'm really like, can't wait to see. I've been anticipating this for so long. Is there some sort of ritual that, that y'all do before you see a movie like this where you're you're lovers of movies, but you also have to look at it with a critical eye? So how do you put all that baggage aside? Or is that just something that we should celebrate and take into the movie theater with us? Our love of the original three should be brought in and sit right next to us when we're watching the next installment, even if it's 20 years later. I am all for embracing your passion. Uh just like, just like Mia, Emma Stone said in La La Land, people love what other people are passionate about. And I know Jacqueline is rolling her eyes at that uh, reference to that movie. But Jacqueline, I'm making a note. We, we, we made it 40 minutes, almost 40 minutes into the show without Mance dropping the La La Land bomb. So <laughs> I, I think we all won here today. But, but uh, listen, I went into Crystal Skull with my fandom for Raiders and Indiana Jones, I, I embraced it. 
And I leaned into it watching the movie. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was able to look past the flaws. Now, that passion doesn't always work because I hated Star Trek V, The Undiscovered Country. And I, as you know, am a massive Trekkie. And, but my love for Star Trek is not absolute. When it's good or great, I love it. When it's not good, I don't like it. This is but, one of those great times where I get to correct Scott Mance on a Star Trek movie because Star Trek V is the final frontier. Star Trek VI six is, the is the Undiscovered Country. Wow. And I can't believe Wow. I cannot believe I've waited over a decade of knowing and loving this man, of worshiping at the altar where he sits with his Star Trek nostalgia. Scott, oh my I'm God, just busting so your job. Oh my God, so shook right now. I wish this was a video <laughs> podcast so y'all can see his face. I mean, it's oh. literally like a kid when you tell them Santa doesn't exist. He is shook, y'all. I, I just messed up it. Star Trek. I just messed up well, Star Trek. we're putting you through the ring. For today, shame. You know? For I mean, shame. You're, shame. You, you must feel like Atlas right Right now, you're carrying the weight of Indiana Jones on your shoulders where, Jacqueline, I, I know that you have nostalgia and love for movies. I mean, that's why we all got into some version of this business. But are, are you able to check it at the door? What, what's your process for watching a movie that is based on a property that you loved 20, 15 years ago? I mean, I think obviously, well, this was before I was in the industry. And so I would say, even though I didn't buy the ticket, what made me rent the movie, what made me watch the movie was my fandom, was my love of indie, um, Indiana Jones and the whole franchise. But as I'm watching the movie, it also, it can turn on you. It depends on where the movie goes. If the movie goes in a place that you want it to, and it gives you the ooh-ah sensation that you are craving, then yes, that, that little buddy will sit next to you and be happy. If it doesn't, like it didn't with this movie, they become like a heckler in your ear being like, do you remember when they did this better? Do you remember when they did that better? And it really even dampens it down even more. So I think that fandom, that extra little bit that you bring into the theater depends on the movie as far as where where it hits you and whether or not you like it. Because, you know, not to bring up another divisive movie, but for some people watching, uh, you know, The Last Jedi, that, you know, little bit of fandom was telling them this is great. And then for other people, it was like making them want to stab their eyes out. So it just again, it depends on how you perceive the film. You're always going to see it through the eyes of being a fan, how you're able to evaluate it. Um, Again, just I think more depends on how you see the movie. And as famously stubborn as 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 famously stubborn as George Lucas is, Scott, I, I think that he responds to that criticism as much as anyone because he's gotten it from Star Wars for so long. I've seen Lucas quotes where he talks about how he's making a movie and he knows the critics are going to hate it and and he knows the fans are going to be divided because fans have already made up this canon. They've already made up their own fan fiction and I don't necessarily think that was an issue with Crystal Skull. I think whatever we had for that, we put aside and just wanted to see Indiana Jones again. Yeah, listen, that's a good point. Um, you know, after Return of the Jedi, Lucas could there's Lucas was damned if he did, damned if he didn't. You know, he was going to face criticism. And sure, uh, going back to something Jacqueline said, it's about it's about what we bring in too. it's about the perception. But it's also about the way the film is presented. Uh, I did not like The Last Jedi, uh, but I'll tell you what I loved because I thought the fan service in this movie was great. And it is the reason why this movie is my third favorite of all the Star Wars movies is Rogue One. Rogue One 
is great. Rogue One is the prequel that the other prequels should have been. Well, as Jacqueline hinted at earlier, uh, we can't get out of here without our fan expectations, if you want to call it that, for what the fifth Indiana Jones movie could be whenever, if ever, we get it. As of right now, James Mangold attached to work on this thing, and that's an exciting director. And I would say, yeah, he everybody's maybe looking at Mangold for like, oh, he's going to do for Indy what he did with Logan. I don't want him to do that. I don't want Indy to have the same fate as Logan. What I'd like to see is more of a Ford v. Ferrari story, which had a lot of action, a lot of intensity, and some lighthearted fun moments, too. So I am expecting big things from Indiana Jones 5, because in the same way we're talking about J.J. being free from the overwhelming presence of Lucas to make his Star Wars movie, I think that Mangold is going to have pretty free reigns with some input, I'm sure, from Lucas and Spielberg, but he's going to make his movie, and that's an Indiana Jones film. It might just be the redeeming factor that someone like me or especially Jacqueline might need. I, I got I to tell you, when I heard that James Mangold was, was going to direct Indiana Jones 5, which I'll still, look, I'll believe it when I see it. They've been talking about Indiana Jones 5 for years now. And I mean, if you thought Harrison Ford was old in 2008 for A Crystal Skull, holy Toledo, how are you going to do an Indiana Jones 5 with Harrison Ford being, what, 80? I mean, that's ridiculous. But the redeeming factor in all of this, the thing that gets me excited like you, Mark, is James Mangle, not only because of what he did with Logan, but what he has done with his career as a filmmaker, the way he has shifted genres and made great films like Walk the Line, Copland, uh, obviously Logan, but The Wolverine, which, you know, was uh, felt like a samurai movie. And definitely, definitely Ford versus Ferrari was a superb movie. I love that movie to pieces. So... Do I think that he's going to be able to shift gears and shift genres and knock it out of the park based on his track record? Yes. My concern is more about Ford being uh, up there. I'll take him up there. I, I still think he can deliver a great Indiana Jones performance. Might need a little more uh, stunt person work than we did before, <laughs> but I think we can pull it off. I got a quick story. I think I saw Manson, maybe Jacqueline, at the premiere. I was lucky enough to go to the premiere of Ford v. Ferrari. And at the after party, I walk up to the bar and one of the bartenders is a friend of mine from stand up. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? We're, we're, we're chewing the fat. And there's three bartenders up there. Nobody else is in line to get a drink yet. So I have my beer now and I'm just talking to him and I keep seeing his eyes kind of dart over a different way, but I'm just catching up with my friend. And I say, okay, well, good to see you. I walk back to my table. All of my friends say, I cannot believe you just blew it. And I was like, what? What did I do? Apparently standing right next to me getting a drink that I did not realize was Mr. Harrison Ford himself. Oh at the Ford v. Ferrari premiere. So I had my run-in with Harrison Ford, and I would rather talk stand-up with my bartender friend than I would lean over and say, hey, is Indy 5 still happening? Is the guy directed this movie going to be directing that movie? And annoying with a ton of fan questions. So if Harrison's listening to this, you're welcome. I was professional, and I didn't bother you once. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. <laughs> Very good man, sir. Hey, I, I do what I can. Jacqueline, are you going to the theater opening night with me and Mance to go see Indiana Jones 5 in the year 2525? <laughs> I mean, if I still have this job, let's be honest, of course, I'm going to be seeing it. You're going to see it before me, and I'm you're like, going to be telling how, me. 
<laughs> how reluctant I am. Um, I think it depends on a lot of things. I mean, look, you're right. I think Mango can get a lot of folks excited about what they're going to do next. If they make this like a Last Crusade type adventure and turn Harrison Ford's character into the Sean Connery character, I think it's going to be really interesting. Oh, they try to play this game again of pretending like no time has passed and getting Indy to do the same things that he did before, uh, we gonna have problems. But I'll be there to watch. Maybe they just might take the approach that Denis Villadeuve did with Deckard in Blade Runner 2049. That movie's about two hours and 20 minutes long. And we don't even see Harrison Ford until more than an hour and 45 minutes into that movie. But we feel his presence like we feel the aura of Deckard throughout the whole movie. So that's another approach. Blade Runner 2049 is absolutely fantastic. And with the way Harrison Ford played him, I felt like Deckard was one of Harrison Ford's very best performances in the last 20 years. So when we're talking about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull being a good movie or maybe just being a good Indiana Jones movie, Scott, I know you think it's a fresh movie and it deserves its fresh tomato meter 78 percent. Do you consider it a good movie standalone and a good Indiana Jones movie? Is it both across the board? I think it's I think it's a good Indiana Jones movie, maybe not a great one, but I think it's a good one. But I also think it's a really good action movie. It's a lot of fun. I love the heart. I love the humor. I love Harrison Ford, one of my, one of my favorite actors. Uh, terrible interview, but great actor. Um, he. <laughs> <laughs> But it's Harrison Ford. I mean, you're in the room with him. Come on. It's, right. it's okay if he doesn't answer right. any questions. He doesn't need to say anything, right? Just just stand there and look like Harrison Ford and, and say nothing. But uh, I think it's a lot of fun. And again, because I hadn't seen it in many, many, many years, uh, I do. I was surprised by how much how much more I liked it compared to when it first came out, you know, 12 years ago. All right, Jacqueline Coley, is this a fresher, rotten movie? Is it a fresher, rotten Indiana Jones movie? Oh, it's <laughs> rotten. Ah, it's, it's rotten. But this is the thing. I'll put it rotten slash barely fresh. It's just there. Look, most of the Indiana Jones series is scallops with risotto. And we kind of got served reheated Chinese food. It's not horrible. It's not, you know, <laughs> disgusting, but... I could do better than reheated Chinese food. And as far as Blade Runner 2049, I love I know you love it, Scott. And I I definitely have love for that movie. But I just want to remind everyone that it got beat at the domestic box office by Daddy's Home 2. Okay, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm going to say that I'm going to put Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I think it's actually fresh if you consider it just a fun action adventure. In the 1950s, and I'm going to go just rotten, just barely rotten uh, as an Indiana Jones film, which it is. So I guess I'm going to have to side barely with Jacqueline, but I do have so much love for this and seeing Harrison Ford back as a proper Indiana Jones. It's been a pleasure talking about this movie with you all, regardless of what you think of the film. It's always great to get friends together and debate this kind of stuff, which is what we encourage everyone else to do who's listening to this show, because that's the fun of it. It's a community of film lovers, and we're all talking about movies that might be fresh that we think are rotten or that are rotten that we know are fresh. So 
before we get out of here, Scott, you have so much that's going on right now. Congratulations on the super successful launch of your new YouTube channel. Where can everyone find you out there during this odd time in the world when we can't get hugs from you at screenings? Okay, well, if you want to at least get a virtual hug through your laptop or computer, I finally did what everyone, including you, Mark Ellis, and Christian Harloff, had told me a long, long time ago, start your own YouTube channel. But you know what? I had a full-time job that kept me really freaking busy. And well, nothing like a little pandemic to give you a kick in the butt to make you do things that you always wanted to do. So back in April, I started my own YouTube channel. It's nice and easy. It's just Scott Nance with a TZ at the end there. And I've been posting my own film content. I have a regular show called Rank and File, where I take all the films in a series and I rank them from worst to best. I also have a film series called The Movie Man's Double Feature, where I take two films And I make my case for why they would make a great double feature. I'm also doing reviews. I'm doing filmmaker interviews. And just the best is yet to come. So big thanks to everyone who's already subscribed and taken me over 5,000 subscribers. But please do check out my YouTube channel. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And you can also catch my reviews in Los Angeles on KTLA channel five and maybe hopefully soon when we get back to theaters i'll be back moderating in in person q a's because that is my favorite thing in the world to do you know jacqueline as much as i'd love to go over to scott's place and hang out with him i would shudder to open his fridge and see how many red bulls and energy drinks are in there that that are keeping this man going at this level scott i need a nap after doing a podcast and you're just (laughs) You're doing all these crazy things, so I'm just going to keep bothering you. Can you give us a, a movie recommendation that is loosely or directly based on what we talked about today? Yes, I can, and I'm glad you asked. Mr. Mark Ellis, Mr. Dog's stepfather, okay? <laughs> Thank you. That's, available that's on you. Amazon Prime. Thank yeah, you. available on Amazon Prime. If you want a great laugh, Dog's stepfather, Amazon Prime, Mark Ellis, funniest guy in the room always even virtually and at home. So I love a movie. I mentioned it briefly when I was talking about Harrison Ford's greater female co-stars. And one of my favorite movies, underrated film that came out on July 21st, 2000, starring Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer, directed by Robert Zemeckis, while he was in a break between filming the beginning and the end of Castaway, the movie is What Lies Beneath. I love What Lies Beneath. It is a love letter to Alfred Hitchcock. And the more you know about Alfred Hitchcock's movies, the more you will get the references and the structure of that movie. I love the big twist at the end of that movie. And for those of you who have not seen What Lies Beneath, I will not spoil it for you. But if you have not seen What Lies Beneath, I think it made a like 178 million domestically back in the day, which is pretty good. It is a gem. It's a good suspense thriller. It's a good horror movie. It does for bathtubs what Psycho did for showers. What lies beneath? (laughs) What Jaws did for the ocean. What lies beneath does for the bathtub. Uh, (laughs) Y'all can check out, I believe what lies beneath is up there too, but you can definitely check out Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull right now on Fandango Now and Voodoo. I am merely at Mark Ellis Live. Jacqueline, where can all the kids find you? 
Well, I am that Jacqueline on all social media platforms because I'm that girl that talks about movies. And I also want to say that besides hearing from us on our personal channels, we also want you to email directly to the show. That goes to our producer, Lucy, so she will have the fun job of sifting through all of your suggestions for upcoming shows that we could do on Rotten Tomatoes is wrong or what you think about the show so far. How, what are you liking? What are you not? How much more do you want me to talk about Bill Hader? We're, we're here for you. Just, just let us know. <laughs> And send some good emails. I, Lucy still hasn't given me the password to that. So I don't know if it's because everybody's just dogging me or because she just doesn't want me to get insight as to what we might talk about. Lucy loves surprising me. That's why she's a great producer. And next week's episode is another sequel, another film that some say is unfairly maligned. And that would be Sister Act 2. Jacqueline, Ooh. we're getting back in the habit. Yes. <laughs> the, the, let me just tell you, within the culture, listen. There is a lot that folks have to say about the tomato meter score of Sister Act 2. We're going to dive deep. And I'm just going to say I'm, I'm here for all of you as a former choir girl. I'm, I'm going to represent. <laughs> former Catholic school kid. I, uh, you know, nuns seeing nuns. It, sometimes you get that weird PTSD. It's going to be interesting to revisit Sister Act 2 once again. So for the great Scott Mance and the tremendous Jacqueline Coley, I am Mark Ellis. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. And in the words of another iconic Harrison Ford movie, get off my plane. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.